Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yochi here with Jen, who's back with Zach. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about the terror attack in New York, the evolution of the Islamic State, and how the group's defeat in Iraq and Syria means that more terror attacks in American and European cities are probably inevitable. Let's start with two of the most important things we now know. He appears to have followed um, almost exactly to AT the instructions that ISIS has put out in its social media channels before with instructions to their followers on how to carry out such an attack. That was John Miller, a senior official with the New York Police Department, talking about the attacker Saifullo Saipov. But at the same time, after he came to the United States is uh, when he started to become informed about ISIS uh, and radical uh, Islamic tactics. And that was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo making the really vital point that Saipov wasn't, as far as we know, connected tangibly to ISIS. And so, Zach, let's start there. Like, what do we know about Saipov, his connections to ISIS, their connections to him? So right now, we don't have any evidence, uh, any clear evidence of contact between Saipov and ISIS central in Iraq and Syria. But we know, basically without a doubt at this point, that he had a very tight sort of ideological allegiance to the group. The reason we know that is because he requested to have an ISIS flag in his hospital room, uh, which is just really brazen after you've killed eight people in the name of this group, uh, leading to the president calling for him to get the death penalty on Twitter last night. So there's no doubt that he's at least inspired by ISIS. But right now, there's no evidence that they, in terms of the central group, participated in planning the attack. Right, in planning, but also other ways they theoretically could have, sending him money, having him in some way have a connection to them where they're telling him, do this on this day. So, like, there are different ways that they could have been involved, and it seems like none of those ways actually Right. Were. There's, like, there's, broadly speaking, and there are gradations within this, but there's two kinds of different ISIS terrorist attacks, right? There's one that is centrally planned and coordinated and assisted in the ways that you're describing by the central group, and then there's somebody who just reads their propaganda and then decides to go out based on injunctions in, like, their English-language magazine, Dabiq, uh, to go out and kill people, which ISIS has been encouraging people to just do on their own. And that's an inspired by attack. And that's sort of where I think, Jen, like, let, let's jump in there. What do we know about kind of how he radical got radicalized or just how does that process work? Well, um, so in terms of this particular case, we don't actually know his path to radicalization. Um, as of yet, we are beginning to learn some details uh, as to like what happened along the way. Um, when we're talking about also like his... Um, like the proof or the evidence that he did this in the name of ISIS. Um, it, it's also, like Zach said, he literally wanted to hang an ISIS flag in his hospital room, which is a remarkable request. Um, but he also left a note inside, they found notes inside the truck that he crashed um, that basically said to the effect of the Islamic State will endure. And that's not just a random statement. So the Islamic State, so ISIS is, entire uh, motto, their slogan, their tagline is which is uh, enduring and expanding. Um, they're no longer expanding. So I guess they're just cutting it down to enduring. Um, but that's a clear sign that he was well-versed in their propaganda. Um, and, and you know, like Zach mentioned, in Dalbek and in Rumiya, they're uh, another one of their magazines. Rumiya is Arabic for Rome. Uh, ISIS wants to eventually take over Rome. Good luck with that. Um, but they have called for specifically to use vehicles um, as, you know, as weapons to attack civilians in, you know, densely populated areas, um, especially on holidays and things like that. So it's really clear that he was, like like we heard in that clip, following it to a T. Now, when it comes to his radicalization, um, you know, like we, like we heard in the other clip, he seems to have been radicalized here. He came to the U.S. from Uzbekistan in 2010. So he's been here for seven years. Um He's fairly young. He's, what, 29? So what we can tell in, from interviews that have been done um, by various news outlets, some people, as you know, you usually hear in the, in the wake of these things, like, oh, we had no idea. He seemed like such a nice guy. But there are other people who, you know, longtime acquaintances who have said, 
yeah, he started espousing some kind of radical views. Um, one friend said, you know, we got into a religious argument. And he stopped talking to me after that because I tried to correct him. Um, similarly, um, an imam at one of the mosques he attended down in Florida said, yeah, you know, he had an anger problem. He started espousing these radical views. I tried to correct him and he got mad at me and he left. So that's actually pretty typical of what we see in terms of radicalization is that when, you know, people start to adopt these radical ideas, the people around them, including religious figures and also family members and friends, will actually step in and try to say, like, no, this is wrong. Here's you need to learn more about your religion. This is not correct. And they will usually cut them off because they don't want to hear anything that challenges their newfound kind of evangelical religious view. That's actually a vital point that I'd like to come back to in terms of the community reaction to him and what the community tried to do. There's a bit of connective tissue that I find fascinating here, which is that we know now from his comments to the FBI, and he's talking, it seems, pretty openly to the FBI, uh, you know, to the point both of you made about how brazen he is in requesting the flag, but that he was watching ISIS videos. He was watching videos of them executing prisoners. He was watching their other propaganda videos, and they're really good at that. It's something we talk about now and again, how sophisticated their videos are, the production value the videos have, the fact that they're in multiple languages. And I think that's also vitally important because getting these videos isn't hard. You know, getting the playbook isn't hard. It's just all put out there really effectively by ISIS. And if you're watching those videos, the jump from watching the videos to deciding, hey, I'm going to do this, and they've told me how, it's not a far jump. Yeah, look, it's a hallmark of modern radical groups uh, of all stripes to start adopting new information technologies and doing them in a sophisticated and savvy way. You see it in right-wing extremist groups. You see it with Islamists. You see it with left-wing groups. All of them have picked up to varying degrees and in different ways on how to use YouTube and Twitter and Facebook as means of recruiting and attracting people. And that includes these high production value videos. The, the question and the thing that makes terrorist groups unique as opposed to other kinds of radicalism is that they then get people to go the extra step and not just join a movement and get a sense of belonging. It's that they go out and they get people to actively harm other human beings. And that is something beyond the technology. Technology can be used for all sorts of ways and in all sorts of reasons. There's something about this idea that gets young, disaffected men like him, mostly men, again, to go out and kill. And that is the part of radicalization that is really unique to terrorist groups and that scholars, and Jen, correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, don't fully understand. Right. So I'm really glad you brought that up. I was, I was going to say something to that effect is that, you know, we can say that he had 90 ISIS videos downloaded to his phone, which he did. You know, he read Rumiya, Dalbik, you know, various other propaganda videos, but I've also seen most of those videos, right? I've also... I was about to say, I'm pretty sure that all three of us are on FBI watch lists because right, of our viewing but, of ISIS propaganda. Right. Pleasure knowing you, Zach. But I mean, Mia Bloom, who's a, a brilliant terrorism analyst, was um, was talking about this yesterday on Twitter. And she's like, you know, if that's all it takes to radicalize, then I need to worry about my research team because we've all seen probably a lot more propaganda. And the point is not to just be like, it's not a funny point. The point is that there's something else that has to be there. The the individual has to be receptive to that in a way that it's not just looking at it for, you know, from a, a kind of dispassionate, oh, look at this this phenomenon that's happening, right? There's something personal. There's something individual. And, you know, when we talk about online radicalization and online propaganda, it's almost, you know, ridiculous to imagine that it wouldn't be online, that someone wouldn't have encountered this stuff online because everyone's online, right? Like nowadays, that's where part of life takes place. So the fact that they were radicalized online makes sense. But what we tend to overlook are the actual personal ties, right? So a lot of these people who have been radicalized, especially in America, but also in Europe, also have personal connections to people who will help kind of push them or drive them or, or you know, bring them into the fold. We don't know. And that's the part that we're missing right now. We don't know that when it comes to Saipov. We don't know. All we know is that he seems to have been connected to some investigations that were related um, to you know, Uzbek terrorist groups, we think, uh, like a group of, of five Uzbek, um, I think in one, in one Kyrgyz or, or um, Kazakh, I can't remember, um, and that there are some connections, but the police are not being you know forthcoming about what those connections are, whether he was actually part of this group or whether he just knew them. Um, so that's the piece we're still missing. But we also know that in terms of personal radicalization, a lot of times, and again, not every time, there is no single path 
no single model for how someone radicalizes. It's an individual, personal, unique process. But a lot of times there's also, like Zach said, a personal sense of disaffection. So uh, inability to be successful in a job or in a relationship or, you know, just personal value, success, the, the idea that you don't feel like you're doing anything to contribute or to stand out. So this, you know, as as well as other ideologies, gives you a way to look, I, I live for something, right? My life means something, even if it's something fucking evil like this. And I think it's also just worth looking a bit of where he comes from, right? Like Uzbekistan, when we think places terrorists tend to come from, we think Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Iraq. We don't typically think Uzbekistan or any of the countries kind of in Central Asia, which are all kind of clustered, surrounded by places like Russia, China. I mean, these places themselves may be small, but where they are is really vital. But Uzbekistan, some of the other stands, these are places where this is not new. I mean, Kyrgyzstan is where the Boston Marathon bombers happen to come from. When we look at Uzbekistan, you've had Uzbek-born people carrying out terror attacks in Russia, Turkey, Sweden, and they've killed about 57 people along the way. The reason I mention all of this is we were wrestling with this yesterday here at Vox about how do we headline an article currently up on, on Vox.com about Uzbekistan, right? Because you have people born in Uzbekistan who then carry out terror attacks, but you don't want to say all of Uzbekistan is a terrorist hotbed. You don't want to say every Uzbek who lives uh, there and then leaves to a different place is a terror target. But you also can't ignore that they happen to have been born in Uzbekistan. And it's this complicated issue of does national identity, is that determinative? Is where they settle determinative? You know, Jen, to your point, is it that they then come and can't find a job or can't find something that they feel gives their life value? But the connection to Uzbekistan is also really interesting to me. I'm not sure I, I see it the same way that you do. I, I read our article, I've read the coverage, I've followed this. I just don't see any evidence that right now, and this may change again, but I don't see any evidence that being Uzbek was a really important part of why he became attracted to ISIS. It is, it's almost like they're two separate facts, right? There's ISIS is recruiting in Uzbekistan, and then this guy is an Uzbek. And you want to make a connection between those two things. But there doesn't seem to be one. He was radicalized after he came to the United States. There was no evidence that he was sitting there in Uzbekistan in 2010 before he came here, before, by the way, ISIS and its modern incarnation existed, and was speaking to their recruiters or something like that. It's just, while it seems like it should be relevant, his national identity to understanding what happened here, there's no evidence yet that it is. I, I agree. Um, but there is one thing that I think could be possibly, and again, we don't know, um, when he came to the U.S. in 2010, he did not speak hardly any English. Um, I don't know how good his English is now, seven years later. However, if he didn't speak a lot of English and mostly spoke Uzbek, he could have still read ISIS propaganda. And that's because ISIS has been recruiting Uzbeks. They put out Uzbek language propaganda, videos. They had a even had an Uzbek spokesperson who like represented the Uzbek faction of ISIS. So that's where I think there is a potential connection. The fact that ISIS was targeting Uzbeks and therefore made a concerted effort to push out propaganda specifically targeted in that language, that alone could, again, he could have read the stuff in English. We don't know. But uh, every report we've seen has said that he didn't speak very good English when he first came here. So that could be one way that he was able to access this propaganda. And especially, you know, if you're a new immigrant, you feel isolated. There isn't a huge Uzbek community in the United States like there are with, you know, nearly every other, you know, uh, you know, ethnic group, country of origin, whatever. Um, there aren't traditionally there haven't been it hasn't been a ton of Uzbek immigration. Um, it mostly started after the fall of the Soviet Union. But even then, the numbers have been pretty small. It's a pretty small place. Um, so that is, I think, the potential one possible way where it could have a connection. And Jenny made a point earlier that was really interesting to me, that he may have been on the radar screen of the FBI, not because of anything he did, but because he knew people who themselves may have been on the radar screen for the FBI. And you mentioned specifically that there was a group, I think you said about five Uzbeks and maybe somebody from Kyrgyzstan, but that that group was on the radar screen, which again kind of comes back to your point that in a small community of Uzbeks, if you have some Uzbeks already radicalized, potentially he's talking or dealing with those Uzbeks. Yeah, it's possible. Um, and again, we don't know yet. It's More is going to come out. But at the same time, I think it's really important to go back to the, the point I made earlier that he was also in connection with a lot of Uzbeks who were telling him these are incorrect views. So just to to get a little you know sense of what Uzbekistan, you know, Uzbekistan is not Saudi Arabia. It's not um, 
Islam in Uzbekistan is a very, and I hate to use the word moderate, but if we're talking on kind of like a scale of like the super kind of very um, extreme, kind of very literal interpretations of Islam. So there are four schools of Sunni Islamic jurisprudence. So Sunni Islamic legal tradition. And Muslims essentially can pick and choose among the different four. And they kind of range from like more kind of lax to more um, hardcore, I guess. And the the kind of Islam that was practiced, that is practiced in Uzbekistan, tends to be of the more kind of relaxed variety. So it's not like you have this like Wahhabi Islam, like hardcore kind of, you know, which again, even if you do, doesn't mean those people are terrorists. But, you know, but that, it makes recruiting right, easier. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a different kind of Right. So there has to be some, it's not like because he was Uzbek, he was already predisposed to this hardcore version of Islam. He wasn't. He's not. Um, Uzbekistan has a secular government. So I think, again, we need to be careful in terms of like national determinants um, and, you know, and, and how much that played a role. Because again, there were Uzbeks, there were preachers who, you know, imams who were saying, your views are wrong. You need to learn more about your religion. Like, this is not correct. So, yeah, I think, again, it, we're going to be looking more at much more personal, much more individual kind of level analysis here. Yeah, I want to echo that it's especially important to be careful when we're thinking and talking about national origin and connections to terrorism right now because we have an administration that is literally attempting to ban immigration by national origin right. and trying to single out as much as they're trying to hide it now ineffectually, Muslim countries, countries with large Muslim populations. The idea that Uzbekistan is intrinsically dangerous, I believe there even was a question yesterday raised during uh, an administration press briefing where they were asked if Uzbekistan might be added to the travel list and said they might be open to it. Uh, and Trump also wants to cancel the program the small number of Uzbeks who have come to the U.S. have come in on what's called the diversity visa program, where, where the Basically, the way the program works is the fewer people who tend to come normally from your country allows more people from that country to come. So Uzbekistan doesn't tend to have many immigrants to the U.S. under normal programs, so it has a lot of diversity visa programs. Uzbekistan has sent about 4,000 people um, roughly per year, which is a pretty big number, actually, for a small country. But Trump wants to also get rid of that program entirely. Right. So when we talk about ISIS recruiting in Uzbekistan, it, it needs to be incredibly tempered or else we risk demonizing Uzbeks and giving ammunition to the people in the administration, like White House aide Stephen Miller, who have dedicated themselves to restricting immigration as much as possible and treating all foreigners, especially all Muslim foreigners, as potential threats to the United States. One thing that's very interesting to me about kind of propaganda in general is that we are, as a country and as a government, trying to find and kill, in many cases, the propagandists, which is, in some ways, the clearest indication of just how seriously this is seen as, as a threat. And at Fort Hood, when there was a shooter named Nidal Hassan, who had watched the videos produced by a American-born, actually, cleric named Anwar al-Awlaki, the U.S. then killed Anwar al-Awlaki. They sent a drone to kill him. Right. He was an American citizen. So it was the first time that a U.S. drone killed an American citizen without a trial. They also, in a different attack, killed his son, who was also an American-born citizen. But it's interesting because you have this sense then and an understanding that this isn't like an abstract concern about propaganda. It's that the U.S. gets it and has gotten it for a lot of years, except now there's a problem, which is that Donald Trump wants to cut funding for the program, the specific program designed to fight against this. Jen, something that I know we've talked about a little bit off air, but he wants to cut about $300 million from a program designed to counter violent extremism in a local community. And you were talking a moment ago, maybe we can go back to it about the Uzbek community. I mean, what imams were saying to him, what his friends were saying to him when they were trying to get him off this path. Right. So I think there's a really uh, an important point to talk about in terms of, you know, what targeting, you know, Uzbeks and, you know, especially with rhetoric, um, targeting Muslims uh, and singling them out as suspect communities. That's a term that we use a lot in CVE, countering violent extremism. Um, that is the annoying acronym that the government has decided to use and we've all gone with it. Although Trump may want to change that. Yeah, actually. He, he may want to change that. But um, but the broader kind of practice of CVE, um, the idea of creating suspect communities is really problematic because when you have someone like the imam in Florida who, you know, told 
Saipov, you know, hey, that you know, we need to talk. This is not, you know, these views that you're you're having are not correct. Um, it doesn't seem like he took the next step and said, I'm worried about this kid. Now he's dropped off my radar. Should I alert the authorities if I'm worried? I don't know anything about his own, obviously, internal thought process or what led to his decision not to do that. But in general, we've seen this over and over again, where there are concerned individuals who do see the the warning signs, the red flags, but who don't then take the next step and say, okay, you know, I'm going to call the authorities and alert because you obviously you don't want to be like the narc, right? Like you don't want to be the one that just got some kid thrown in, you know, in prison for being a essentially a dipshit teenager and saying dumb things or, you know, a young person. So there's a fine line. And what these CVE programs are intended to do is not just to say like, oh, okay, here's a hotline. They're intended to train religious leaders, families, parents, community leaders in tactics in terms of here's how you can sit down with these individuals, with these young people. Again, not always young people. Nadal Hassan was 39. But here are some tools. It's a literal like training program. Here's how you can sit down and talk to them. Here are some resources. Here are some, you know, counseling programs you can put them in. So you don't have to just be either... I'm going to do this on my own inside the mosque for five minutes until he you know, storms out or I'm going to call the FBI. It gives them a range of tools to be able to deal with individuals who start espousing this because just having violent or extremist views is not a crime, right? The point is to get them not to cross then into actual violence and to curb that and bring them back into the fold. That points to there being two components to the way that we should think about radicalization and the process of it. The first one is the individual level in the sense of what are the specific parts of this person's life and experience and psychology that causes them to be attracted to radical ideas and and then be willing to go the extra mile and commit violence. And that one is, is not very well understood by scholars. It's very difficult to predict which individuals are likely to become violent and which ones are not. Right. The stuff that we actually have pretty good evidence about, or at least better evidence about, is the second level, which is the social level. What kinds of different programs and features of a society can effectively prevent or limit the influence of violent ideas and the spread of things that could push people towards violence. And one of the biggest ones, one of the best evidence and supported things in the the literature on terrorism is the idea that social alienation of groups, Muslim minorities or ethnic minorities, make people much more likely inside those groups to turn to violent extremism. And it's not necessarily poverty. In fact, there isn't a close link between poverty and extremism. It's a sense that the group is being discriminated against and singled out and targeted and doesn't have fair opportunities in their society that makes members of that group more likely to turn to violence. So the idea that we should cancel outreach to Muslim communities in the United States or limit it or ban people from specific countries is to entirely miss the fundamental mechanism of radicalization which is targeting these people and saying that they're a threat. If you say they're a threat and you isolate them from mainstream American society, guess what? Some of them might turn into threats. And it's worth also just agree completely, but just drilling down to the details there because they're interesting. So, you know, Jen was using the acronym before of CVE, of Countering Violent Extremism, which has an advantage theoretically that it can also be the rubric for extremism by right-wing American white militias, right? Not just scary, dark-skinned terrorists or scary Muslim terrorists, but it could actually look at the major threat that comes from right-wing militias. And they want to reframe it basically as a terrorism prevention program with like the wink nod, of course, terrorism never being a white guy shooter, terrorism only being a Muslim shooter. They also want to cut $300 million out of this program. So we're not talking about this like in a conceptual way of Trump wanting to abandon it, although that's also true, but in a very literal, tangible way of just wanting to zero it out, basically. So I will say... Yes, Trump does want to do that and does want to make this focus specifically on Islamist terrorism. Um, However, when you come to the actual government CVE programs, talking specifically the State Department CVE, which was kind of like the hub for this, um, it was kind of already mostly focused on Muslim terrorists anyway. It was called countering violent extremism so as not to to seem like it was only targeting Muslims. Um, But that's where the bulk of the money went. That's where the bulk of the focus went. Now, 
on the other side, when you talk about the FBI and their law enforcement and intelligence efforts, they have long, long been involved in countering right-wing extremism and terrorism, going back, you know, Ruby Ridge and um, you know, Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. So the FBI in particular is actually really good at that kind of terrorism and, and getting inside and infiltrating these groups and things like that. But ju- yeah, I just want to clarify that it's it's not that like the CVE programs run by the federal government were like super, super like egalitarian and were focused on everything. They were pretty much still mostly focused on Muslim terrorism, just to be clear. I mean, let's go back though for a second to the FBI because it's it's an interesting organization obviously now taking the lead in this investigation here, but how good are they? I mean, how good do we think they are at sort of walking that very narrow line? And, and it is, I think, in fairness to the FBI, a hard one to walk between keeping some eye on communities or mosques that you think may be radicalizing or tied to radicalization, but still maintaining ties to those communities. So you don't have a situation, you know, Zach, to your point, where a whole group feels marginalized and alienated and then more likely to carry out an attack. And just like that seems to me like such a hard question, to use the phrase, you know, Jen, the word you used, that community may not want to be a narc, but they may also be willing to talk if they feel like it can be a respectful conversation where the presumption isn't that they're all guilty. But how do you do that? I mean, it's hard. So the U.S. actually is somewhat better than a number of its peers on these fronts. Uh, Britain, for example, imposed uh, this ham-handed counterterrorism Prevent. Yeah, program called PREVENT. That's yeah. an, it's an acronym. Uh, which basically— Wait, wait, But you got to tell us what the acronym is. I don't remember. Oh, hell, I don't know. I don't remember. Everyone just calls it PREVENT and because it, and then makes fun of it because— But they make fun of it because it was a disaster, and it was a serious disaster, right? It really felt like, in the way that it was being implemented, that they were setting up, like, hotlines for Muslims to go and report on other Muslims, right? It was right. about it dividing— It came from a place of trying to do something right and went spectacularly wrong. Right. And a lot of European countries, they just deal with a broader sense of alienation from their Muslim communities than the U.S. does. And U.S. society in general is much better at integrating immigrants than Europeans are, much better at making immigrant communities feel welcome. And a lot of the Muslim community in the U.S. has immigrated since 1945. Um, And so in the sort of modern United States era, that's why I use that arbitrary date. So the FBI is better than some of its peers in some ways. And I wanted to get that preface out there before I say that there were a number of different screw-ups. Really fucking terrible at a lot of it. Right. Uh, Especially after 9-11. The U.S. government's biggest, well, aside from invading Iraq, the biggest mistake that the U.S. government made after 9-11 was this tremendous overreach in terms of infringements on civil liberties uh, and targeting of specific communities. And that happened at a variety of different levels, not just the FBI. Right. The NYPD. Right. That's the example I was going to use. Yeah. The NYPD's surveillance of mosques and other community was was incredibly counterproductive. Yeah, not even just surveillance, but literal infiltration, like sending in like fake Muslims into mosques to, you know, essentially spy on the inside. And then, you know, they turned out to kind of start doing this really controversial program um, in terms of the FBI doing similar. So they have the kind of like informants who will go and find people who are kind of maybe starting to espouse some of these radical ideas. And instead of like having that informant be someone who talks them down, they have the informant talk it up and essentially talk them into doing things. Hey, we can get you weapons. We can connect you with this. And they eventually give them like dummy weapons and then they nail them and send them to prison, which for a law enforcement organization, sure, I guess that's a a practical way to do things. But from a broader societal level of how to deal with extremist views in society and to prevent that to becoming violence, I would argue that it would be more effective to maybe do things like CVE, like training people on how to de-escalate these views, on how to deal with, you know, especially, like we said, young men, but it's not just men, um, but it tends to be, but there are plenty of women. Um, But, you know, in terms of like giving them the actual tools they need to do this rather than just setting them up and sending them to prison. Because, you know, maybe not in the U.S. necessarily, but especially in other countries in Europe, in particular in France, um, prison is not necessarily the best place for these people. They tend to actually, in some cases, become more radicalized in prison because they have all these kind of criminal networks. So they like learn all these terrorism skills. They're like, oh, great. I just had you know radical ideas. Now I'm in prison and I just learned how to make a bomb. Again, you want to get these people off the streets if they're about to go kill people. Absolutely. 
but there's a there's a time frame between when people start to radicalize and when they carry out actions. Now, what we've seen in the ISIS era is that time frame has radically, radically been compressed. So, you know, we're talking days, weeks, months that people are first exposed to the stuff and then will actually carry out attacks. And that's where it's really hard for law enforcement and intelligence to be able to step in in a timely fashion and actually make a difference. There are two things I want to kind of close the segment with because they're both tied together, which is what happens from here, right? So one part of that is ISIS is losing territory in Iraq and Syria. It's basically lost pretty much all the territory it had. So they have every incentive to both carry out attacks, inspire attacks, claim credit for attacks, even if they had nothing to do with it. And so one part of this is, are more of those attacks inevitable? And are more truck attacks specifically inevitable? So we'll start in that in a second. And there's also the what does Trump do part of it? And there you've had Trump, in his immediate response, say, cancel this visa program. You've had him say he should get the death penalty, which is very legally problematic because defense lawyers can say, my guy can't get a fair trial because the president who oversees the FBI says, give him the death penalty. So that's legally questionable. And you've had Trump and others say, this guy should not get Miranda rights. He should be an enemy combatant. He should be sent to Guantanamo Bay. So let's disaggregate and, and deal with each of those. One, are more attacks inevitable because ISIS loses territory? And then two, what does Trump want to do and how does that make it potentially complicated legally and also just worse well, generally? Well, I, I know you want to separate those two things, but they're actually really tightly linked. ISIS previously depended on this idea that it controlled a large swath of territory, a foretold caliphate, uh, that it could govern according to strict Islamic law. Uh, without that as a way of attracting recruits, a kind of twisted romantic ideal of something to go and fight and die for, they need to show that they're relevant in some other way, right? And this means that the entire thing, everything, hinges on the way that ISIS attacks are perceived and covered and discussed and how they play off of what the U.S. and its allied governments do, the people who are victims of these attacks. So for ISIS's strategy to succeed, it needs to show that it is infuriating, angering, and successfully wounding the United States and European countries, and so on and so forth. And the way that it does that isn't just killing people. It's about how those societies react. It's about whether they react resiliently or whether they backlash and install grand new policies that crack down on civil liberties and target Muslim minorities, and their leaders say offensive things that uh, you know further show that ISIS is really dealing with a in their eyes, a violent crusader state, right? So you can't, you, you want to say that there's a sort of separation between the U.S. reaction and the effect of ISIS attacks, but in reality, they're the same thing. The effect of an ISIS attack, if it works, is to provoke an overreaction from the United States. That is the, almost the entire goal. Right. So if you're, you know, a young kind of disaffected person, kind of lost, wandering around looking for, you know, for meaning, or looking for someone to explain why your life isn't going the way it is, you know, and ISIS comes along and says, hey, see, Muslims are being targeted, right? Like Muslims are oppressed around the world. Your country is bombing Muslims here and bombing Muslims there. And, you know, your president says this and that. Well, if you can actually look out and see those actual things happening, that rhetoric will have more resonance. But if you actually look out and see, well, my president just gave a speech at a mosque, so that isn't okay. Yeah, I mean, we're supporting the Saudis and bombing Muslims in Yemen, but the Saudis are Muslim. You know what I mean? Like, if you look out and see that the rhetoric matches your reality, it will have more resonance because it feels more real. It explains what's wrong. It gives you a way, you know, a scapegoat, a way to say, oh, that's why I can't get a job. Not because, you know, I'm a shitty employee, but because you know, I'm being oppressed. Right. I mean, that, that was, uh, there's a fair point, that I, but that wasn't really kind of the question I wanted us to drill into a little bit. I meant very specifically, literally, what happens in the sense of this tactic for terrorism attacks? Will we see more truck attacks? And then literally and specifically this case. I mean, what does it mean if you start sending people back to Guantanamo Bay? What does it mean if you say the justice system is a joke? What does it mean when you say military tribunals are a better way of conducting terror trials when statistically, and you know, Zach, you wrote about this for Vox.com, statistically, they, are, sure not, did. they are not a better way. I honestly am, am not surprised, but it's interesting that there actually haven't been more yeah. of these kinds of attacks in America um, compared to what we've seen in Europe. So it's literally such an easy thing to do. You just need the will to kill 
and a vehicle. That's all. You don't need to know how to put together a bomb. You don't really need to know too much about hard targeting versus soft targeting. You just need to know where people gather and drive. And the fact that we haven't seen more of these, I think, is a testament to a lot of different things about America and about the way that, you know, we've we've handled, you know, immigration and things like that. Um, And it's a testament to the fact that Muslims in America and, you know, other people um, are part of the American culture, part of American fabric, part of American life. They are allowed to we are allowed to be part of this country. We have been forever. And. Yes, I think there are going to be more attacks like this. But again, just because one person did it here doesn't mean that it's going to be like a trigger effect that like everyone's going to do it. I mean, we've also seen vehicle ramming attacks by far right terrorists just recently in uh, Charlottesville. So, you know, someone running over protesters, there's also propaganda out there calling for that. So I think people are realizing it's a popular tactic and it's easy to do. Um, Whether that means that people are going to suddenly decide they want to kill is a different question. Nothing that the president said yesterday in his prepared statement when it comes to legal remedies for dealing with terrorism made any sense whatsoever. The president's comments suggested that we need something that is a punishment that is far quicker and far greater than the punishment these animals are getting right now. First of all, the language of far greater punishment for animals. Uh, he's talking, I mean, I know I know they're terrorists, but he's talking about human beings here, right? And the notion that you use this kind of language as the highest uh, authority in the world in some ways, uh, as the head of the most powerful state, is really stunning. The second part is that he called the U.S. justice system later in that uh, rant a joke. It's anything but when it comes to terrorism prosecutions, right? So since 9-11, more than 620 individuals have been convicted on terrorism charges in 63 different federal courts, right? So that's that's a pretty extensive record of successful prosecutions. Whereas military commissions, an experiment the Bush administration tried at Guantanamo Bay after 9-11, when they had the exact same criticisms that Trump just lodged, have convicted eight people. So there roughly were eight times as many court jurisdictions that successfully prosecuted terrorist people or people on terrorism charges than there were individuals prosecuted in the entire military tribunal system. It's a stark indication that civilian courts are, and really the general legal system and rule of law is quite effective when it comes to prosecuting terrorism. Vox.com, as you might imagine, is not full of people who wear suits. It's full of people who tend to wear jeans, T-shirts, and if they're dressing up, nicer flip-flops than usual. But there are times when you really, really want to wear a suit. And if you do, it should be a suit that fits. And it shouldn't be a suit that you just buy at a department store that kind of fits a little bit boxy, that looks kind of old. You want a suit that is more modern. You want a suit that fits you well. And you want a suit that's kind of you. And we have a way to help you with that. It's a company called Indochino. And what they do is make it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at a really incredible price. You can choose from hundreds of fabrics. You can personalize it how you want it. You can have thin lapels, wide lapels, double vents, one vent, two pockets, one pocket, lots of different things. And that means you could have the suit that works for you best if it's for work, not necessarily here, for a wedding, for another special occasion. Indochino has suited up hundreds of thousands of men, and they're the largest made-to-measure menswear brand in the world. Here's how it works. You can go to a showroom or shop online at Indochino.com. You could pick the fabric. You can choose the customizations, lapels, pleats, jacket linings. You could submit your measurements. Then you place your order, and it comes in just a few weeks. Now, worldly listeners can get Indochino's best deal ever at just $359 for a premium suit if you enter the code WORLDLY when you're doing checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Shipping is free. Again, to get one, you go to Indochino.com. Promo code WORLDLY for any premium suit for $359 and free shipping. It's an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. For elsewhere this week, we're making a return engagement to Kurdistan in northern Iraq because you've had several big things happen, which we'll talk about in a second, capped by the resignation of a man named Masoud Barzani. Typically, when we talk about foreign leaders resigning, we don't often talk about foreign leaders resigning, especially people whose names are not necessarily ones we've heard. But he did, and he said this when he did. So that was Barzani saying the independence referendum can't be erased. 
This was a referendum for independence that the Kurds, who are basically quasi-independent, held a short time ago. It was catastrophic for a lot of reasons. And now he's saying he's going to go. So who is he? I mean, why is it such a big deal that you have a politician step down? Well, Iraqi Kurdistan has two major political parties. And the Barzani family has long been in charge of the one that's currently in power, the Kurdish Democratic Party, or KDP. And he was the main driving force, Barzani specifically, behind the independence referendum that we were talking about, which would have, if it were successful, have separated Kurdistan and Iraq's northeast from the rest of the country. The problem is that he claimed a lot of oil reserves, including in a city called Kirkuk that has 40% of Iraq's oil reserves, as Kurdish territory, and the Iraqi central government couldn't allow that. So they sent in troops to seize Kirkuk, and Barzani didn't really want to mount an offensive against the government that he had been cooperating against and one that militarily outmatches him, according to most military analysts. So he holds this referendum. Then they lose a bunch of the oil territory that they previously controlled. And now what? Right? They're, they can't be an independent country. They're not financially viable without these oil territories. So he's now put them in a situation where they, if they want to declare independence, they're screwed. And if they don't, then he looks ineffectual and weak and subordinate to the Iraqi government. It's no wonder that he resigned, but it's a shockwave to Kurdish politics, given how powerful Barzani is. Right. I mean, he's been, you know, he's been running the Kurdistan Democratic Party for for decades, and he's been, you know, actually a president um, in power since 2005. His tenure officially expired in August 2015. They extended it for couple years just to let him stay. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, him stepping down is is massive. Um, I think it's interesting is that back in 2016, Barzani actually promised, um, he, he gave a speech and he said, quote, the day we have an independent Kurdistan, I will cease to be the president of that Kurdistan. Well, there's no independent Kurdistan and he just ceased to be the president of that not independent Kurdistan. So, I mean, it's really striking how badly he handled this and how massively he overplayed his hand. Um, and, you know, and we discussed this in the previous episode, you know, or in a past episode rather. Um, but, you know, he essentially set this up, independence. He's been a staunch nationalist, a Kurdish nationalist for, for decades. Um, he's a former guerrilla fighter. So, but he sent independence, this independence referendum up as this answer to Kurdistan's problems, right? It's the answer to, you know, their economic issues and their, you know, lack of complete sovereignty. Like this was the thing that was going to finally, I will be the man who will deliver the Kurds for once, finally, their own country. And then he didn't. And that sucks because the Kurds are essentially like back to square one, if not worse off because they lost Kirkuk. But it's also a massive kind of roiling chaos within kind of the Kurdish political system itself. And, and I think like there's two points in that that are really interesting. One is Kurdistan is often seen in this country as kind of a model, quasi-model of a quasi-democratic, quasi-state, but it's not. You have basically two families, the Barzanis and the Talibanis, who control everything. And it's much more akin to like mafia divvying up of, of, of land than democratic elected leadership. When you visit Kurdistan, everyone you meet is part of one of those two parties. So to get a job, you're a member of those parties. To get healthcare, to go to school. So everyone literally is part of those parties. Except for the Goran movement, which is a third party. But but they're basically, in terms of politics, they're, they're basically- Right. They're, like if you they're, wanna, not, they're not relevant. If you want to be anyone, you have to be part of those two parties. That's right. the point. And the leadership of those parties were Barzani, Masoud Barzani, and Jalal Talabani. Talabani died. Barzani has now resigned. So you've got this mass chaos in terms of the leadership of, of these two mafia families. And you have the Kurdish movement, which has been basically in a golden era since the U.S. invasion. They've never been stronger or more politically viable or wealthier. And now that golden era has stopped. And for Barzani, that has to be so beyond embarrassing, just so painful, because on some level, he's rational. He has to understand beyond the politics that he's really screwed his own people. Let's go back like three and a half years, roughly, to June 2014, when ISIS started sweeping northern Iraq. Initially, this was obviously a geopolitical disaster, but for the Kurds, it wasn't so bad because the Iraqi government was so preoccupied with dealing with the ISIS crisis that they were free to occupy a bunch of territory in Iraq, including Kirkuk. And this is crucial 
because of Kirkuk's centrality, both to the Kurdish national narrative and, more importantly, its finances, as, as I discussed a little bit earlier. So they take this city whose status was still up in the air, though legally it belonged to the Iraqi government at that time, and they were still controlling it when ISIS was being defeated earlier this year territorially. The only reason that the Iraqi government stepped in to seize Kirkuk back, which it was legally entitled to do, but it wasn't doing for political reasons, was because of the independence referendum. And I emphasize that because this is entirely an own goal by Barzani. There is no sugarcoating this. He made a decision to host this referendum, which he didn't have to do. There was no legal decision. The other political party, the PUK, kind of tacitly opposed it. Right? It wasn't— The Adriatic Union of Kurdistan. It, it wasn't necessary. He just— it was an incredibly bad decision. Can I ask you a vital question? What is an own goal? It's when you kick the ball into your own goal.H- oh my God, Jen, knowing more about sport ball. It's a sport, wait, wait, did it's a you sport not ball know term. That? Is it a, it's a soccer thing? We're a, yes, we're an international podcast and you don't know basic soccer terms. I, I like, call it footy. I like to gamble and I don't know how to gamble on soccer, so it's irrelevant to me. Well, gamble oh against God. the team who has own goals. So just to go back to the the point, and, and Zach, you're totally right, it was an own goal. Um, to just kind of underline how much this is like a two-family, like mafia-run country quasi-state, the person who's essentially now in power, who's taking over the reins of power after Masoud Barzani stepped down, is Netjervan Barzani, his nephew, um, and Netjervan Barzani's deputy prime minister, the guy he works with closest, is Kubad Talibani, who is a relative of Jalal Talabani. So, like, one guy died, Jalal Talabani died last month. Uh, Masoud Barzani is stepping down, and the next generation of Talabanis and Barzanis are now stepping in to run the country. What some analysts think is is potentially positive, though, is the fact that, one, Netrivan Barzani is perceived as being much less polarizing figure than Masoud was. Um, he's younger. I mean, he's, like, in his 50s, so he's not, like, a spring chicken. Um but, you know, Masood was, is 71, uh, Neshirvan is 51. Um, but he has a close working relationship relationship with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Um, so he's much less polarizing also within uh, Kurdistan politics. And he has a really close, good relationship with Kubat Talibani. Like, the two men work closely together. So he's also been central to brokering most of, of the Kurdistan regional government, the KRG's oil deals. So potentially... It could actually be positive. Now, I think it's also important to point out that Masoud Barzani stepping down doesn't mean he's actually leaving politics or he's leaving the scene. Like, he promised over and over again, like, I will still be there. I will still be active. I'm just not going to be technically president anymore. But he's not necessarily, like, going off into the distance in retirement and, like, going to start crocheting. Yeah, I also want to just—I love the image of Masoud Barzani crocheting. Same. But— I want to just give a, a snapshot of like what his life is like. So in Erbil, where he lives, uh, which is basically the capital of Kurdistan, he lives in this giant compound at the top of a mountain that's known, depending on who you talk to, kind of colloquially as the Eagle's Nest. It's like a James Bond villain lair. <laughs> it's huge. And nobody lives there basically but him. And when you go interview him, he will make you wait. And then it's this massive, massive room. And then he comes in. And when I've talked to him there, he sits in what looks kind of like a throne. And then sort of like in a royal way kind of waves to you to start talking and then takes his time and makes clear to you how unimportant you are relative to him. But all he talks about is independence. And so you have this guy who isn't going anywhere, who lives in this bond lair at the top of a mountain, whose followers in the Kurdish parliament, there was a, a fist fight between pro-Barzani people and anti. So he's not going nowhere in a very literal sense. He's going nowhere in a political sense, and that means that the push for independence and all the messiness and violence that's gone with it is also really not going anywhere. That fistfight thing, uh, it makes it seem like there was some kind of huge political disagreement, like the Barzani party and the PUK, the Talibani party, have big ideological disagreements. They don't. Actually, if you talk to any Iraq analyst, the first thing about Kurdistan, the first thing they'll tell you is they're basically mirror images. It's like Kang and Kodos. And such a great reference. They just live for who can get the most profit out of the government, who can distribute the most favors. It's pure patronage politics. You're in one network or the other one, and you benefit from your network being in power, and you lose when the other network's out of power. And that's it. 
That's it. It's the reason that the PUK opposed the independence referendum is not because they're anti-independence. It's because it was a Barzani project. Right. And they don't want Barzani to succeed at anything. Right. right. It's the whole system is so fucked. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that's a great way to stop. I uh I love the idea of ending with the system is so fucked, but do you have a better way of ending so we don't <laughs> we don't end with the system is so fucked? <laughs> yeah. So um I also just in terms of you know, we talked about like the chaos and, and politics that's going on, there's still a potential for for violence, right? Like there are still open questions going on. So Baghdad has demanded that Kurdistan officially on paper royal seal annul the referendum result and the kurds are saying no like we're happy to negotiate you know we maybe won't won't declare independence you know we can work out some some things we're not going to annul it like it happened we're not going to officially annul it and that has become a huge sticking point because if they could you know figure out a way to sit down and like talk through this that would probably be useful. But now you have, you know, all these fights going on. And and remember, you know, the Kurdistan forces, the Peshmerga, have been fighting kind of alongside the Iraqi army. And now these two forces are clashing. You know, they clashed in Kirkuk um, in some ways. And they're still both issuing, like, these really aggressive statements publicly at each other saying, like, you know, we're not going to work together. We're not going to integrate. We're not going to do all this. So there is still a potential for for further violence and chaos. So I don't, you know, this isn't just a political story. Like, this is very serious potential consequences for the stability of Iraq, for the stability, you know, in lives of the Kurds, um, for, you know, and the stability of Iraq isn't just important for Iraqis and for the country, which it is. But it's also important for, you know, the broader fight against ISIS. Like, instability is what allows these kinds of groups to kind of take advantage and rebuild. And that's something we literally just tried to get, you know, push them out. We don't want to just now collapse, have Iraq collapse back into chaos. So it's really, really important. And so let's end there. We've now done two Kurdistan pieces. I'm looking forward to the end of the trilogy. I want to thank, as always, our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard. Episode six, the Barzani Strike social media manager, Julie Bogan. Um, You can always email us, worldlyadvox.com. You can get us on Twitter with the hashtag worldly. It's return of the Barzanis. You can come find us. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe. We hope you do. And I do want to just give a personal kind of selfish shout out to a listener named Jennifer Thomas, who wrote to us on email to say, has anyone mentioned to you guys that the evil Mr. Scratch on Criminal Minds sounds exactly like Yochi? Nobody ever had mentioned that. But Jennifer, thank you for pointing that out. And I don't have any idea what the reference refers to. So email me and let me know what it does. And we will. It's it's, it's a TV. It's a TV show. It's on the TVs? It's on the TVs. Excellent. Thanks, Zach. (laughs) Uh, And with that, we'll be with you all next week.